of yesterday, the justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. I guess it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen the hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering, when you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her little eyes when she is told that Fun Town is closed to colored children and see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky and see her begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son asking in agonizing pathos, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you have to take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you when you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored when your first name becomes nigger and your middle name becomes boy however old you are and your last name becomes john and when your wife and mother are never given the respected title misses. When you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly on tiptoe stands, never quite knowing what to expect next, and plagued with inner fears and outer resentments. When you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodyness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of injustice where they experience the blackness of corroding despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. That was... Uh, James Earl Jones reading selections from Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham Jail, which we are going to talk about today in light of everything going on in the country right now. Uh, it is a timeless document. If you've never read it, I don't think it would be out of line for me to suggest that you should, um, and now is as good a time as any. Uh, it's uh, so... With me tonight, I'm Nathan, uh, Joe is here, and so is Brad, and the three of us uh, have reread 
the letter from Birmingham jail to walk through it and talk about, um, you know, go through it piece by piece uh, and talk about Martin Luther King Jr.'s incorporation of philosophy to make his points, um, that sort of thing, and, and explain what it is exactly he's getting at and draw some conclusions from it. Um, that's, that's it. This is, this is what we're going to do today. Um, so you guys, um, also read the letter. Um, Joe, you, you've read it before, correct? Yeah, I actually taught it earlier this, uh, this school year. Um, when we were reading Aquinas, I used it as an example of, uh, Thomistic thought and action. Um, cause I nice. think, uh, Dr. King does a fantastic job of incorporating philosophy very directly and uh, in a way that's accessible and understandable, particularly to his audience. Um, so like in addition to a work of philosophy, I think it's important to also talk about this as a work of, of rhetoric and a work of political philosophy specifically. Um, I think he, Dr. King definitely leans more on the... Uh, the philosophical aspect of it, but he does make some really poignant political analyses of America that are actually uh, reminiscent of a lot of the thought of Abraham Lincoln. And I don't just mean in regards to emancipation, I mean in the way that Lincoln himself viewed the United States as a political entity. And we get when we get to that point in the letter, I'll talk about it um, for sure, because I think that's it, it demonstrates the, the depth of knowledge that Dr. King had and how important it is that when you're going to try to use political philosophy, you do need to have a pretty strong depth of knowledge, both historically and philosophically, of what you're talking about um, in politics. So that's just, that's my specific contribution. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great piece of everything, really. It's, it's just, and, okay. and in addition to that, it's just very well written. It's, it's beautiful to read. It's one of those yeah. things that like, I enjoy reading. Just uh, yeah, yeah. Like, Brad, just, go ahead. Just like a summarizing blurb, something I picked up from it too is there's a lot of context that you can get just from this letter, where he talks about several different groups. How he he talks about how he's nestled between two different uh, extremes of a spectrum, um, and he he brings this up because he's referring to the fact that he's called an extremist, which is what prompts him to write the letter itself. Um, the letter really kind of reveals so much about the landscape of the entire civil rights movement and how much it took, how much organization, how much effort, and how long they worked at it to get to you know what we know today. That's, yeah. That was something I wasn't expecting to get out of it. I thought I was just going to get philosophy or like you know a very emotionally charged piece of rhetoric, but it was. Just thoroughly, this is this is a document that only someone with a lot of free time on their hands could have come up with, as, he, as stated by King himself at the end. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> he's in prison when he writes it. Right. Yeah. Um, and he yeah had a lot of time to think about it, and he was well, you know I, I, of course very well educated, and so it, this is, I mean, this is a just I mean, an incredible just, piece of writing. Yeah. Well, one of the things uh, I, I oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I just learned so much I just learned so much from it I mean yeah. and it's and beyond just what he was like just reading between the lines 
I learned a ton from the lines themselves, but reading between the lines, I, I learned even more. Yeah. So I, um, I, I, what I'm saying is I think everyone should read it. Everyone who listens to this, if you haven't read it yet, read it. Yeah. It's good. Had, had you read smarter. it? Had you read it before? I had only seen very limited blurbs and quotes, uh, mm-hmm. so the answer is no. Yeah, I think that's I think that's actually general generally the case. Um, really, that yeah. surprises Which, me. Well, I, yeah. mean, I guess yeah, that I, yeah. I mean, my 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 high school background was homeschooled, and I remember at a very young age my mom making me read this. Uh, really? Cause yeah, I don't, she was I like, "You have read to read it. this." Yeah, I don't. Um, I don't think I read it until in full until. Um, until my freshman year of college, maybe maybe my senior year of high school, I read it. I but. know that I know that we had to read it at least twice as part of the politics curriculum, um, hmm. and uh, at Saint Vincent, um, and then I, yeah, I mean I, I had my students read it too because I, I I just think that it's important to to get that historical background. But there are a couple things, Brad, that you said that I wanted to kind of expand on. One was that the, the thoroughness of this, right? So that's I think that's really important to to indicate is that this is not a piece of emotionally charged rhetoric and I don't think anything that that Dr. King wrote was a piece of emotionally charged rhetoric like it was a very yeah. everything that he does is well, meticulous it, it, yeah. and thorough and he's well, displaying the importance of a liberal education and an importance of an academic approach to, to things right he's not leaving anything out um, it would be very hard to well, okay, maybe this is my it's, my it's, biases well, here, but I think it's hard to criticize this just because he's so meticulous and thorough. You you basically took words out of my mouth. I was gonna say it's bulletproof. He yeah. he hits he hits every single point from every perspective, and then also nestles some emotionally charged rhetoric in there, not to manipulate you, but genuinely like he's he's laying it bare. He's he's being honest with the reader. Yeah, and saying, well, look, this man, this is how it feels. You know, I know this isn't an argument, but like, in a way, he's he's you know, opening himself up a little. So well, so community. Inter- interesting. Well, I'm glad you guys honed in on the rhetoric because I mean, it it just goes to show what a great rhetorician he is. I mean, he was a preacher too, so there's a sort of those homilies. Acu- yeah, acuity for speaking um, that he has, and um, you might you might not have known this. Um, I remember hearing at one point that his I Have a Dream speech, he had had a speech prepared, um, and I think he sort of went along with that, but at a certain point, like, the I, had, the I Have a Dream part was totally off the cuff. He did not plan that. Um, that was him, you know, for lack of a, you know, better terminology, that that was, that was him, I, I think, you know, he that that was like the holy spirit almost like he's uh had he's gotten this idea in him and he's he's letting it flow i don't remember the exact details but there there are clips online of him giving his i have a dream speech and it's you know they're incredible he's such a powerful and emphatic speaker um to listen to and that's without like pre-written material um you know even the parts that are pre-written he's you know but he he wasn't afraid to sort of break away from it. Uh, I think that's part of the other reason he was so effective and so charismatic. Um, there, yeah, I mean there there are a few no things. Less, oh, go ahead. I was gonna say this is no less no less charismatic. I mean it's all there, but this is it's it's so meticulous and it's so bulletproof um, because this is a different kind of document than you know a speech given to a crowd of people. 
Um, we should maybe give some background of the letter, um, because you know even if you've read it, it's it, it's worth repeating. And um, he, he it, does it, a, a fair a bit of background in the beginning, right? So he explains yeah, so. why he's in Birmingham, Alabama, um, and it's because the the um, the black community leaders in Alabama said, "Hey, we are having a lot of problems with you know getting stuff moving down here." Um, the government is being very restrictive. If we start to engage in nonviolent protest activities, we would like to have you down here because you're an important figurehead in this movement. King agrees to go down. He does go down uh, and is eventually arrested on the charge of parading without a proper permit um, and then confined to jail in Birmingham, uh, where he then yeah. writes this letter. Uh, and he's specifically yeah. addressing this letter to his fellow clergymen in Alabama who publicly condemned the march as being um, unwise and untimely uh, while still purporting to agree with the spirit of King's uh, movement or in the civil right movement, civil rights movement as a whole. Um, they're, you know, they're still saying, well, now's not the right time to, to do this. And so this letter is King's... Um, response to their condemnations uh, that he does then incorporate a lot of other things into as well. Uh, so the, another important con contextual point for this is that he's speaking uh, to fellow religious leaders. Um, and this is one of the things that he points out very articulately later on in the letter is that he expected a lot more support from uh, the religious, I guess just the religious people in the South in general Um and was initially surprised and disappointed to not receive it. So there's a several purposes in this letter where he's not just responding to one particular group of people, but a sort of institutionalized indifference um, that's prominent throughout a, a movement where he would have expected support from. Um, and so that there's, there's right. that from a rhetoric perspective, that's important to keep in mind. Um, yeah. If you didn't have anything else, there's actually some some stuff here that I wanted to uh, to to point out just right from the very first paragraph about the rhetoric of this letter. So um, he 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 begins it by speaking directly to the to the people that are condemning him, right? And he he basically says like I don't usually respond to criticism because if I did, I wouldn't do anything else. Um, but he he sort of says I'm making an exception for you guys. Uh, and the quote is uh, because he feels that they are men of genuine goodwill and that their criticisms are sincerely set forth. Um, and so that, that's something that I found really interesting because I, there, it's hard to believe that this is in fact the case. Um, that, you know, that you do yeah. have people of genuine goodwill and having sincere criticism set forth. Um, do I, I don't know King if he even thought that. <laughs> well, so this is the point that I'm getting at. I don't know if he did or not, but the fact that he is doing this is important. Um, yes, because I would argue that the first step to, to, to meaningful dialogue is to acknowledge the humanity of the people that you are dialoguing with. Um, I don't like to use the verb dialoguing. So the people that you're talking with, um, and the reason that I think that is important is that no matter how evil the people you are dealing with are, uh, you can't deny their fundamental humanity if you want to engage with them in a way that is good for both of you. 
And I, there's something about King's stance that really does make me sincerely believe that he saw the civil rights movement as something that was good, not just for black Americans, but for all of America. Um, that obviously there's a, a qualified particular good that's happening for black Americans, right? Getting rid of segregation is a benefit a to them. good. Yeah, but mm-hmm. there's also a, a, a good for the whole of the United States that is Seriously. accompanying I, his movement. And so he's not yeah. trying to be adversarial here, even though he has every right to be. Um, and it would p- be just as poignant of a letter if he were taking an adversarial tone. The fact that he's not is, I think, key to approaching dialogue itself, is that it's not a, a contest of wills. It's a an effort to convince someone who is like you in some way, no matter how what difficult it is to see. Um, and so just from the very beginning, we can see that the effort that it must have taken to love his enemies in a way like this. Um, you know, I think King does a really good job of embodying Christian virtue in this letter, but just in general with that particular opening, even if he doesn't believe it, um, there's an important thing there. And then it serves to change the way that the people he is writing to read the letter as it goes on. So once you get to the end, he does sort of start to lambast them and say like, hey, I expected your help. You should be out here helping. It's really depressing that you're not. There's, there's, you know, racism is a sin. Things like that that are really, uh, that, that, you know, suggest maybe that these people aren't acting in good faith. But the fact that he has already called them out as being acting in good faith challenges them to then live up to the ideal of acting in good faith that he puts forward later in the letter. Um, right. And that's just, that's a masterful rhetorical tool to say like, hey, you are good people. Uh, and then as he continues saying, you know, good people would do these things. And he's already said like, hey, I think you guys are good people. They are then forced to undergo a bit of self-reflection to say, oh, maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. I mean, it, it's not a tried and true way to 100% convince anyone for sure, but it is a rhetorical tool that demands either self-reflection or callous ignorance of the point being made. Um, so that, that's just my rhetorical observations for here. The fact that he approaches them in good faith, this is just weird, like a, a bullet point summary. The fact that he approaches them in good faith um, is key to engaging in productive conversation. Uh, and yeah. then the fact that he assumes that they are acting in good faith challenges them to actually start acting in good faith because they now realize we haven't been doing that. Right. I, I was going to say part of his, his assumption, uh, you know, um, of them, you know, reaching out to them in good faith is that he, he assumes that these are educated people who understand very, you know, who are, because he's, he's responding to, uh, to uh, my printout here has a little intro. It says it, it, this letter was his response to a public statement of concern and caution issued by eight white religious leaders of the South. And so he assumes that, you know, being religious leaders, they're well-educated. They know some theology and philosophy. They're going, and, and Christian morality, he's going to approach them on these grounds um, that are rooted in Christian morality and uh, find commonality there because he, he knows like 
look, you're, you are men of good faith, both in terms of, uh, you know, argument. You have genuine concern, King says, and he also says that, you know, I think the implication is also that they are men, uh, in saying that they're men of good faith and assuming they're men of good faith, he also assumes that they're good Christians and Mm -hmm. um, educated ones at that. And so that they're going to be the most likely to recognize um, King's arguments, be be able to most easily um, accept them. Uh, So that's part of his his rhetorical approach, I think. And I do want to, I do want to say that I definitely don't think that he's being like sarcastic or ironic. I think he's being absolutely sincere. You know, he, he's not just, it's not just like a bait and switch, um, you know, where he's like, Hey, you guys are, you're good people. And then at the end says, you're not, not good. saying, he's, come here, come closer so I can slap you. Exactly. He's not. At, at no point throughout the entire letter does he ever attack them or take them on bad faith. He doesn't He it's doesn't resort to autonomy. faith. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, 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 and I didn't want to at suggest no point, that that's no what point, he was doing. Oh, no, no. I just want to I just want to make it clear he's that reiterating. I don't think that... Yeah. Yeah. Nate's yeah. reiterating. But you're right. If, if he's going to sort of critique them in return, also in good faith, there has to be a sort of um, acknowledgement of their humanity at the beginning, which he does so, he does so well. Um, Do we have any more, I mean, go ahead, keep going, because I was going to say, there's, there's beyond just rhetoric, there's so much in this, and I don't want to spend too much time just talking about Um, rhetoric. Yeah. Right, but I mean, that's a big part of it, because he, he is a masterful, uh, rhetorician um well i i I think that i i really honestly think though that he's not levying his his uh he's not levying rhetoric as a tool and um just just bringing it down upon these people to like uh and i i'm not suggesting that he would ever be manipulative or that you guys are saying that but what i mean is i think that you can only achieve something as master masterfully rhetorical as this is unless you actually are acting in good faith and it's to the point that like the rhetoric is so so concrete and so concise and so harmonious with everything he's saying that it it blends the it it blends and blurs the lines between what is rhetoric and what is actual logical argument well i would actually i would say that like the i would say that it, it is. He is actually using rhetoric as a tool, but part of what makes it yes, yes. good in this case, he's. he's well, I think he's doing it on purpose. I think well, he's I think, being so sincere. No, well, I think he is using it, but he's using it at the service of something good. You know, he's yes, not just doing yes. it to say whatever his opinion is and try to convince people of of his opinion. He says no, this is true, and he can say it in a very con- he can say what is true in a very convincing way. He, you're right. He blends arguments logical arguments with rhetoric but like many philosophers do that augustine was a big one um i think plato in many ways sort of imitates uh you know rhetoric um yes it with his his dialectical you know with his dialogues um because he's he's writing in a in a 
literary sort of format. Yeah, just he's for, he's just, playing with rhetoric, but it's always at the it's never at the service of like I'm trying to beat you and con- convince people. You know, Plato had and Socrates had big problems with the rhetoricians of their time yeah, who were all, all trying to spout I'm off trying, you know convince people of opinions yes, um, that I'm weren't true. Is that I think I I just think that everything he's saying is just totally natural. Um, I don't. I don't think that there was much of a how do I convince these people of X going on. Right. But I mean, I, I don't really know. I don't really know how relevant that is, but I, I think that that is it's important to maybe think about that just because in the context of history, the recent history at least, he is one of the most successful uh, progressive. He's the leader of one of the most successful progressive movements. Ever, and when yeah. you think about how much was stock like stacked against him, that's what that's what gives the context of success. And it wasn't a complete success. You know, the work wasn't done. Like that, that they there's still work to be done to this day. Yeah. As we know, obviously, that's an understatement. But I, I guess I'm sort of just alluding to like he had just the right mix of the education, intent, and just talent. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think that it's important to acknowledge rhetoric as, and I mean, I know that you guys had a podcast that I wasn't, I wasn't on about rhetoric. That was, um, it was a long time ago. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I want to to make clear that rhetoric is itself a tool that can be used for good or bad, um, and that I, I I don't know how correct I would. I don't know if I would agree with you that there's no like attempt to say I want to convince people of this. In the writing of this letter, I, I um, think his her, I think his ultimate goal with this letter is what I'm saying is I think his ultimate goal is just purely I'm going to state the truth of this and I'm going to speak entirely in good faith. Yeah, and so I think that you can that, do all of that while still them. using yeah. rhetoric. Is is I guess my my yes. point there? Um, yes. Which I mean, like I, I think this is more just a point for me to clarify. Like I do think that rhetoric is an important thing that oh, we should yeah, learn how to use. Um, yes, I, I agree one hundred percent. I what I what I just mean is I, I think the rhetoric that comes out is just like a natural consequence of his talent and his education. Mm-hmm. I I think I think that this letter is just him actually having a sort of lucid moment and just saying like. Look, guys, like I don't know what you want from me. I can tell you that this is what I wanted from you, and here I am. Like I stuck to my guns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah, mean, it's totally, I, I would agree it's with totally that. honest. Yeah, he, there's yeah, no. That's there's... what I'm really saying. It's so yeah. honest that yeah. it's it's like the, the rhetoric is sort of like it writes itself. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely but... there's not a single abuse of rhetoric in this entire yes. entire yes. Uh, document that. Yeah, I think that's, that's all I've got to say on that. Yeah. Okay, so I, I thought it would be good to just sort of walk through it. So I'm glad, you know, we started at the beginning. Um, he explains, you know, why he's in Birmingham and uh, says that, you know, he's he's there, you know, it, it was it was sort of necessary that, that he was there. And so why, he's not from Birmingham, so why, why is it necessary that he goes and helps um, the organizers in Birmingham with their uh, display of um, direct action. Why, why is it necessary? Um, and the first place I 
saw him, you know, he started to justify this. Um, well, he, he first compares himself to, um, he, he makes an analogy to uh, the 8th century prophets, um, you know, carrying their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns. Um, this is a few paragraphs in. Uh, he, he talks about the Apostle Paul, um, carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ to practically every hamlet and city of the Greco-Roman world. And he says, I too am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my particular hometown. So that's his first justification. And then um, there's this paragraph beginning, moreover, moreover, I am cognizant um, of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. And uh, this is where a really famous quote comes from, and I think it'd be worth giving it full context. Um, he says, I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are yeah. caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow, provincial, outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider. Um, my first thought was that in response to this um, is the title of the famous John Donne poem, No Man is an Island. Every person is connected. Um, and reading that, it really struck me how, how antithetical that is to the general public's sort of ideas about what it means to be free. Being free is about what I can do by myself and for me and the the select the people I select around me, you know, like maybe I've got family members and friends who I want to benefit most. This just flies in the face of that, you know, the, the, the sort of freedom that I think is often championed in America and is sort of rests on the shoulders of various philosophers. Um, like, I mean, Joe, you can correct me if I'm wrong because it's been a long time since I've read my political philosophy, but John Locke, um, and possibly Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and probably Thomas Hobbes, that, like, politics, or participating in politics and being free is sort of a matter of getting ahead, and it doesn't really matter if you leave people behind. Um, yeah, I mean, that would be a, a Hobbesian thing for sure. Okay. It's not something that Locke explicitly addresses, but it's it's an implied... Um, it's it's implied within the context of his philosophy. Yeah. I think Rousseau would probably be the one that you mentioned that would be the most opposed to that. Uh, but at the same time, he, there's the famous quote from the second discourse on government that uh, everywhere man is born free, and uh, we, but in states or something, he is in chains. Um, That's and right. Then the and discourse so is about legitimizing the chains that hold man down. And it's not about getting rid of them. It's sort of just like, well, we, we are born in chains, so we need to legitimize the chains in some way. So there's there's like an implicit acceptance of leaving certain people behind if the chains are disadvantageous to particular groups. Rousseau, I would, I would argue, would be fine with that. Well, um, and I would also say that like his general thesis accepts the point that, you know, if, if someone could get free of those chains, you know, and be outside of society, that they would actually be living a better life than mm -hmm. someone who is bound by those chains to the rest of, to other people. You know, I, I think Rousseau 
you know, it, that goes with that yeah, quote. I mean, you know, it's it's important free. for Rousseau that we are radical individuals. Um, yeah. And I, I actually would argue that the, the most guilty of the, the Enlightenment philosophers and the liberal political philosophers of all this would be John Stuart Mill, um, you, who yeah. in his essay on liberty basically says freedom is the license of the individual. And existence in society exists for the sole purpose of a particularized individual actualization of freedom, whatever that might be, so long as it doesn't directly harm other people. Um, but he's not explicit about what that means, and there's a lot of utilitarian background to that 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 makes that claim yeah. a little bit dubious. Um, that's, that's, that's my, my background I've... or political philosophy to that statement. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it, it, all this to say that th- these sort of enlightenment philosopher premises about what it means to be free and what freedom permits um, are very unlike what Dr. King thinks freedom is all about. I mean, just this small little paragraph here goes against those premises from anyone whose philosophy would permit... um, you know, sort of leaving the polity, any part of the polity behind by saying that, well, this faction sort of won out in the end, um, so we don't really need to worry about the, the other one anymore. Like, no, Dr. King wants to make it very clear that um, what affects one of us affects all of us. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's, this is a totally radical statement even today, with today's very charged politics um he said when he says at the end of that paragraph anyone who lives inside the united states can never be considered an outsider he doesn't say every citizen who lives in the united states he says anyone who lives inside the united states can never be considered an outsider i mean he's making some very radical claims here but it the way he frames it makes it seem not so not so radical like it flows very naturally from what he's he's suggesting um and it and very consistently too it doesn't seem out of place um you know that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere sort of justifies this whole this whole um point that he's he's setting up at the beginning um and and i think it's important to not let that particular statement be turned into a platitude sorry you were saying something well yeah it it is very important to not let that statement turn into a platitude because I mean, when when he says that, he actually he actually means it. If you know, he's, if the yeah. protesters in Birmingham, uh, you know, he's in in Atlanta. But if the protesters in Birmingham need his help, he's like, yeah, we 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 can make this work. We're going to come help you, and he does. Um, he's not about to stand for injustice anywhere. Being distant from whatever problem is going on, especially within our own country that is supposedly unified um distance is not an excuse to not be involved um and to to not care um to not try to do something um you know that that's that's that me before others mentality that like i my freedom comes before the freedom of everyone else and i need to secure my freedoms before before I can even worry about anyone else. Like it's, 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 um, he's going against that from the get go. 
Um, well, I, 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 I just think that he's challenging something that a lot of people have just drank the Kool Aid, where yeah. like it's 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 just assumed that you know, okay, there can be outsiders, so it's like, oh, we're from the South, we do it different down here. Oh, I'm Louisiana boy. That's how it is. Oh, I'm white. You're black. He's saying. He's just saying. Like, no. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're within the confines of this singular nation, all of us, all of us are bound by the same constitution. I think that's because he, he. I think he's tapping into the constitution is sort of like his linchpin to a lot of this. Well, um, this the other is one where God, God, obviously. finish finish what you're saying. Um, but yeah. and the reason I say it is just because he brings it multiple brings it up multiple times. But I, 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 it's so radical, but it's so powerful and effortless. Like Nate said, I think it's because he just he just cuts right past it. He's like he's like it's almost like he's calling everyone out for like let's stop pretending that you and I are different because yeah. that's just uh, that's just made up. The truth is, is anyone in this country facing injustice sets a precedent for myself. So whoever's facing injustice, I'll be there. Yeah. That's what it, it, you know. It, it, he immediately sets up his premise. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't waste any time trying to refute the other mentality of freedom that I was just talking about. He doesn't waste any time. He's just like, yep. you, you know, I, I love this sentence. We are you either get or you in, don't. An inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny that is a premise that I think most people would agree with. And well, if you agree with that, but you also think that, you know, you could put your freedom before freedom is your personal power to pursue becoming God. (laughs) Yeah. If you, if you think you can hold those two things at the same time, well, guess what? You're in, you're in a little bit of trouble there. Uh, you've got some cognitive dissonance, I think to, uh, I I would probably contend that that most people don't believe that. Well, I think you're right. I think you're right. But like, um, having him actually say it out outright mm-hmm. like this, I think most people would read that and be like, oh yeah, he's right. And then once they realize that it disagrees with, um, I have something maybe to add their to sort that. of per- political approach or I- idea of freedom, then they would push back on it. Like, no, that he must mean something else, you know, he, um, or he's wrong for these reasons, that sort of thing. Um, go for it, Brad. I, I would say that uh, let's get a little Hegel in here. So what oh, Nate's I have saying, some Hegel and then, comments. <laughs> yeah, because we're gonna what, talk about that later. Yeah, um, what Nate's saying here is that like most people would agree with it, but then Joe's saying, well, I think most people would disagree with it or don't believe that. I think I think most people can agree that the reality of life is that we're all bound by a web of mutuality. You know, the universe is sort of bound within itself. We're all, we're all just nodes within a network. Um, but at the same time, and, and yeah, but at the same time, that's not the goal for a lot of these people. Yeah. And I, I'm just going to loosely, I'm just going to, for the sake of having an easy term, I'm just going to call it, uh, you know, like a radical libertarianism or something. But like that is that is like at the heart of a lot of the bad philosophy of American people is I, I that mean, yes we're bound by this web of mutuality, but the ultimate goal is that you are totally self sufficient, um, 
And, and I think that that's where animosity comes for people that are protesting like King or others because a lot of these things require the power that comes from government, that comes from capital, that comes from support of – I'm going to hypocritically use the term outside groups. But what I mean is, is you know, like the white moderate mm-hmm. is because the true – like the difference between these people is one – King is saying we can't do this unless we work together both like black nationalists and also uh, apathetic, apathetic black people during that time period, they all need to work together. But then beyond that, you know, we also need the whites. And I, I think that this radical libertarianism sort of idea that Americans have is that like any sort of reliance on anything but yourself is unbecoming of freedom and power and God because the ultimate expression of freedom is to get away from mutualism, to be entirely self-sufficient, which is just at its core completely just illogical because to be self-sufficient, you have to make yourself, you have to create the universe. Yeah, I mean, that's... You know, that's nobody, the, that's I, mean, the, I mean, every human on this planet, every human on this planet was birthed and had a mother. <laughs> they, had, yeah. they spent nine months in the womb, you know, and I, I it's... I, I think that that's just a little something that I, I, I don't know how relevant that is to King's particular message, but I think that that is like one of the cultural phenomenon that he's going up against. And I, and I think that that's where, I think that that's where the, the concept of the white moderate comes from is because these are the people that their freedom is, they, they live in happiness under the status quo, believing that they are self-sufficient, and that is and that is the challenge of King and of any of any progressive is pulling everyone into his cause and saying, even if it doesn't affect you yet, or you don't think it does, it really does. And there, there's several things that right. I think we can tie up here, right? I think it's it's telling that King doesn't turn to enlightenment liberal. And I mean liberal, as I always do on this podcast, when I say liberal, I mean neoliberalism, people stemming (laughs) from from Locke and political liberalism, right? But there's a reason that King doesn't appeal to those philosophers for his message. Even though you would think, logically speaking, that they would be the biggest proponents of what he's saying because they're all about freedom and not oppressing other people. But this particular passage illustrates that for for the logic of the civil rights movement to work you require this interconnected web of mutuality right that that it presupposes that man does not exist in a vacuum it presupposes the fact that that man are political or social animals um and that our yes. primary and our, our natural existence our our telos is not to be atomized individuals who work solely for our self-actualization on our own, but that we need to do so within the context of a functioning community that is ordered towards the common good um, and uses political power and political influence to guide people towards the common good. And I, I don't mean in a sense that we're like forcing people to do, although I guess to a certain extent I mean that you are making it difficult on a legal perspective to do the wrong thing and easy for in a legal perspective to do the right thing right and and this is a key element of classical 
Christian and post-liberal political philosophy. Um, if you look at Aquinas or Augustine, well, maybe not so much Augustine, but if you look at Aquinas and you look at Aristotle and you look at Plato, it's it's a it's presupposed that man is a political animal, and because of that, then their political philosophy follows a particular set of ideas that act upon this assumption that we are political animals that we are meant to live together and so that if we are going to live together we need to make the act of living together a mutually good experience and not a specifically good experience like aquinas and aristotle's goal is not to create a society where it is easy for bob to do one thing and jim to do another but uh where it's easy for both bob and jim to in to achieve human flourishing um and this is something that you see as a, as a key element in post-liberal political philosophy. And by that, I'm thinking of people like Eric Vogelin, Leo Strauss, uh, Jean Beth Gielstein, Hannah Arendt, um, and I, maybe to a certain extent Nietzsche. I have a harder time justifying Nietzsche's view of this, but a bit, it's, it's something that you see after you get past the Enlightenment. Um, I mean, the, I don't want to get too much into my beefs with the Enlightenment, but I do think it's important that... King does not appeal to these people. What I think is a yeah. particularly uh, telling bit of how King understood America is that he does appeal to the American Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and American political yes. thought in this because you'll get people like certain professors from certain very well-known schools that would argue that America is fundamentally opposed to the classical idea of mutual living together. Um, and I think that, that King's appeal to this is not just a rhetorical appeal to the Constitution, but it's something that you can see in Lincoln, and you can see to a certain extent in Washington and Hamilton and the Federalist Papers. And if you read American political philosophy from the founding onward, there is a, a tacit assumption that living together in America is a mutual thing. Um, you can argue to the extent about states and how they wanted all of that to work, but, but there is a, a implicit and underlying classical assumption in the American project. So when yes, you can say that America has a particular brand of liberalism. Uh, America has a particular way of interpreting and acting upon Locke and that, that enlightenment liberalism is the predominant political philosophy in America – but you can't escape the, the classical underpinnings of the American project. And King identifies that. And he makes clear that there is something that we can appeal to here. Uh, and just another particular uh, historian slash political philosopher to look at for this would be Alexei de Tocqueville. In Democracy in America, he really hones in on the, the reality of the mutual, uh, the web of mutuality that is America, And he makes clear that if we abandon that web of mutuality, America isn't going to last very long. Uh, and so there are some other tacit assumptions that King makes later in the letter that tie to that. Um, and I, I know I've been talking a while, but I mentioned uh, appeal to Lincoln. Um, that's not the only similarity to Lincoln that is, is here, right? So when King talks about uh, the whole of the United States being one entity – you're really seeing a reflection of, and I don't mean really as in like, this is actually what King meant, but I'm saying you're, you're seeing a, a similar sentiment to Lincoln's arguments during the Civil War about the United States, the importance of preserving the Union for the United States, right? So for, for Lincoln, the Civil War was a 
about many things. This is going to be a weird point of like, what is the Civil War about? And I don't want to get into that. Um, But one of the key things that Lincoln emphasized in his rhetoric about the Civil War was the importance of preserving the Union and the importance of the United States as one single entity of a country. Um, the, you know, the famous house divided speech is referenced in this letter, uh, and it's, it speaks to that really important conception of America as one single entity and that being the strength of America, uh, and being a particular necessity of, to acknowledge in order for America to stand. You also see similar things in Lincoln's Lyceum address, which was given way before, uh, the civil war, but you get what I'm, I'm saying here. So, so I, this is, on one hand, a testament to, to Dr. King's knowledge of American politics, but also it points towards a general truism when talking about politics in America, is there are certain things that you can't ignore, and if you choose to ignore them, you do so to the detriment of the American political project. How, whatever your opinions on the American political project are, if you acknowledge these particular things about it, you can work to better it in some way. Um, and so that that's I, I, that's just one thing that I noticed when I read this because I, I read this a, a few times, right? And I just I always notice something new, and that was one new thing that I picked up here. Now I'll shut up because mm. that was a really long uh, speech. Sorry. Well, it's good. Um, yeah, and we'll we'll be able to touch on that even more later. Um, anything else you guys want to say before we move on? Okay. No. Um, so uh, he goes on, and he, he's. He's uh, going to address um, his approach to direct action. Uh, So he says, you deplore the demonstrations that are presently taking place in Birmingham. um, But I'm sorry that your statement did not express a similar concern for the conditions that brought the demonstrations into being. I'm sure that each of you would want to go beyond the, the superficial social analyst who looks merely at effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. I would not hesitate to say that it is unfortunate that so-called demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham at this time, but I would say in more emphatic terms that it is even more unfortunate that the white power structure of this city left the Negro community with no other alternative. So, um, he, he's going to, this leads into sort of his approach to direct action, and immediately after that he says in any nonviolent campaign there are four basic steps collection of the facts to determine whether injustices are alive, negotiation, self-purification, and direct action. We have gone through all these all of these steps in Birmingham. Here he sort of goes through the the ex- extent of the organization behind um, his uh, the the uh, civil rights movement. I mean, there was so much um, organization involved. There were many different um, civil rights organizations uh active at the time and they were you know coordinating with each other to um you know make protests happen and sit-ins and and boycotts and that sort of thing it was all very coordinated um to to help make these things happen um and uh they sort of, and it, for him specifically, for, for his approach, for his um, nonviolent approach, um, they had these, uh, a very sort of methodical approach to it. Um, uh, and so he goes on to sort of explain, well, how did we get to this last step, this last step of direct action? And um, 
he, he goes on to explain the, the tension that arises. So he starts to express frustration that, well, we were promised things and our things pro- the promise happen. things did not happen. The promises were not met. Um, so, you know, we, we're, we're basically, we're being told no, despite having been promised previously that these things would change. Um, well. and so he, he goes on to, to answer this sort of thing. Um, oh, and he, he even explains that we, we, they like pushed off their direct action in Birmingham based on other factors. You know, they were, they were trying to play it very carefully because local elections at the time were like a big deal and and especially when you're trying to win uh civil rights you want to make sure that your participation in elections is is as uh appears to be as fair and and um and uh straightforward as possible you know the last thing you want to do especially as an oppressed group is to have your votes not count um so this Uh, this i think there's a there's a separate thing there where candidates and yeah yeah go ahead well i think the separate thing there is he he doesn't want to be seen as someone who's like intimidating voters to vote a particular way. Um, right. That was one of the, the vibes that I got. Right. Cause it, he said we, we waited until after the election so as to not have, you know, be levied, uh, have accusations levied against us of influencing the election Exa- in an unfair exactly. fashion, which I mean, exactly. this is, this is a, like it, it almost seems from a, a, from a political science. And I use that in the most derogatory way possible. Um, perspective that was my political science joke for the day um when you use it from that perspective uh it actually would make more sense to have a protest like right before an election right because then people are like oh maybe this will change the way i vote so the fact that he didn't do that is is it is a testament to the the moral high ground that he's intending on taking and intentionally taking here yeah yeah um you know Um, you're you're, because yeah, because you well, don't want to be you can imagine. accused of something it, that, even if you were right to do that, and then it's a smart political tactic to do, um, he wants to say, like, no, this isn't the result of, like, political meandering, that's not a, the right word, but the result of political manipulation, um, yeah. this is the result of an actual, like, this electoral victory is the result of, like, actual reasoned argument and not appeals to emotion and fear. Um, yeah, well, and you can you can imagine the... the um disastrous effects it would have if you know they they demonstrated before the election and then a candidate who was more sympathetic to their to their movement was elected um the accusations levied against them yeah like you said like i I mean not just the accusations but the effects would be would be damning you know it in addition to calling the election into question in the first place i bet i'm willing to bet that um if such an accusation could be made then violence would break out again you know it there would be there would be lynchings and mobs you know if if they could pin the blame on the civil rights movement for the election of this person that you know the the um, ostensibly would have lost and wouldn't have been on the side of white supremacists right yeah so it's uh he they're playing it very carefully and these ministers who have written this public letter are still, you know, saying that his direct action is untimely. Um, yeah. So as he says here, why, you may well ask why direct action, why sit-ins, marches, marches, and so forth. Is it negotiation a, negotiation a better path? And he says you're exactly right. Um, 
but he, he starts to touch on this idea of tension um, and the necessity of, of tension because he doesn't think tension itself is a bad thing. You know, he, he thinks that tension is a sort of room for growth. Um, and, you know, he always, it's always worth quoting him directly. Um, he says, um, nonviolent direct action uh, seeks to create such a crisis and establish such creative tension that the community that has consistently refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks to, so to dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. I just referred to the creation of tension as a part of the work of the nonviolent resistor. This may sound rather shocking, but I must confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly worked and preached against violent tension, but there is a type of construction, constructive nonviolent tension that is necessary for growth. And he gives us a great example here. Just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individ individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, we must see the need of having nonviolent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. Um, so the purpose of direct action is to create a situation so crisis, so crisis packed that it will inevitably open the door to negotiation. We therefore concur with you in your call for negotiation. Too long has our beloved Southland been bogged down in the tragic attempt to live in monologue rather than dialogue. So his whole point is saying, like, yeah, you're totally right that we should be negotiating. But the problem is all of our attempts so far haven't been a real negotiation because they've all been one-sided. We're, mm -hmm. we're our words are falling on deaf ears. Um, this isn't a negotiation if, the other, if, if both parties aren't willing to listen. It's, it's basically a... Um, it's almost like a filibuster, but the opposite. Like you're just waiting for your, the person you disagree with to stop talking so you can ignore them. You know, mm -hmm. it's just the opposite of like, I, I don't know what you would call that, but um, it's it's very one sided. And so, yeah. cause enough cause enough creative tension that puts people in a position where they're more willing to listen. Uh, some examples, I, I, you know, something that worked so effectively at the time was boycotts. You know, people lose money, makes them a little more willing well, to hear you well, out. Well, well, yeah, he very soon after that, uh, in one of the following paragraphs, um, he basically says is cause economic disruption. Yeah. Um, and and the truth is, is I, it's I mean, this is my spiel that always pops up in every episode, but it always is relevant somehow is that, you know, in, in a in a free market capitalist society, that's, that's where people, that's, that's where people feel it. It's the only place that people will feel it. Yeah. And, and, and I know that we're not really trying to, we're not trying to shoehorn any sort of current events into this. We're only going to let it happen naturally. Um, I, I, I think this is one of the moments where it just naturally makes sense to bring up current events in some instances. Um, like for like how many years ago was it? Did Colin Kaepernick, do his peaceful demonstrations of kneeling during the the anthem. Yeah. Yeah. And that was and that was that was already at that that was the direct action stage how many years ago? Yeah. That was the direct right. action stage where he's saying like I'm going to do this until you negotiate with me. And instead of negotiating, it was a heavy-handed action was taken. I believe the NFL just banned the kneeling, right? I believe mm -hmm. so, yeah. 
yeah, I, I think that's what they ended up doing. I think he was I think he was prevented from playing too. I don't well, know. Well, yeah, they they say that he lost his job because he just wasn't good, but I mean that's mm, that's not true. That's, that's dubious. Not true. Yep. Dubious yeah. at best. Yes. Um cuz he he was good. I mean, he wasn't the best in any sort of way, but point the point being is is yeah. Uh, How good they, he was as a player is totally irrelevant. irrelevant. As far as oh I'm yeah. <laughs> You'd think that other people would feel the same way, but they don't. Um, but yeah, that's and that's the point is, you know, when someone when someone when someone tries to negotiate with you and you don't, they do what they can to get you to the table, and if you react to their peaceful protest by just strong arming them into silence. Yeah. It's going to fester and brew until eventually you have to start taking more excitable actions. And there was peaceful there was peaceful riots, you know, in in the recent years as well, and it's it's just evolved. The I can't remember who said it like always, but riots are the language of the unheard. Oh, it's Martin and Luther King just in a different it was, it, was it a different different speech? Yep. Yeah. How perfect. How perfect. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I just, I don't really think there's anything left to say that it's, <laughs> I normally am not a victim blamer, but in this case, the victim is the system and uh, the system is all powerful. So it's kind of hard to be a victim when you're the one who really controls the outcome of everything. Uh yeah, and, and our our existing system, our existing system, in Martin Luther King's time, bred an environment in which people needed to protest by boycotting things, by just just blatantly disregarding the rule of law, and I think an argument can be made that, in some instances, uh, the the you know not all of them. I'm not just gonna paint a broad stroke, but the riots that we're seeing today are are another manifestation of that. Uh, not necessarily from like, you know, I'm not even coming from like right or wrong, good or bad. It's just you've given, you, you eventually create a system where like people have nothing and they want to negotiate. And the only way they can get your attention is this way. Yeah. It's sort of like, it's sort of like cornering an animal and then it lashes out. Yeah. It goes back to what he said earlier where he said, uh, you know, you deplore the demonstrations, um, but I'm sorry. But you could have avoided them. I'm sorry that your statement did not express a similar concern for the conditions that brought the demonstrations into being. You know, it, yeah. it, like you want to get at the underlying causes. Like he says, it's like I wouldn't take you for people who who are only interested in the the surface level information. Revolutions are terrible. Who, yeah. Um, Revolutions are terrible, but the things that cause them are even worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's some truth to that. Um, so yeah, he talks about this tension, and um, he he starts to address this criticism of the 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 um, the protests being the the demonstrations being untimely or the direct action specifically, because um, <laughs> not all of the demonstrations I swear at the history time are, repeats are itself. his. Uh, what did yeah. you say? I said I swear history repeats itself. I've, oh, yeah. I've had I've, I've heard that exact rhetoric today that not right now, not during football. Uh, oh, it's just it's just inconvenient. You're keeping people from getting to work. There's never a good time, right? There, I mean, like I there actually isn't a good is time. Supposed to be so the best time is now. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, exactly. And that's and that's a point I've tried to make to people. Peaceful protest where like uh, all the cops get behind you and like the de- senator waves to you and then you all go home. You lost. Yeah, you lost. I mean, that, that's that's the big a protest that is I not successful a until you protests. get a guy to the negotiating table. The point of negotiate the point of protest is to get people to the negotiating table. It's not to make black voices heard. What's the point of a black voice being heard if no one's going to talk with it? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a, some frustrating reality there because, like, you're right, and and America has, like everything else, managed to commodify the peaceful protest where it becomes an event that people can make money off of. Um, there are protests, there are peaceful protests that happen every single year. They're not going to change anything. They're not going to change anything. They haven't for years. Um, They're just going to sell they do, a bunch of rainbow-colored penis straws. I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it might make people feel better, I guess. Um, but the pro- the problem is that, like... <laughs> It doesn't. It doesn't have the 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 weight that it used to, um, because like anything else, people figure out a way to make money off of it. But you, what you said is actually a great transition, um, a great segue into this next section of the the letter, because yeah, there there is no, excuse me, there is no good timing for a protest. Never. Um, he he says this outright in in the, um, a few lines down. Um, he says, uh, we know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have never yet engaged in a direct, a direct action movement that was well-timed according to the timetable of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with a piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant Never, and it's it's the same thing. You know, people say the same same thing today. You know, if if people want to say Colin Kaepernick needs to not do that during a football game, that that's basically what they're saying. You know, they don't actually have a time and place for him to do it, or if they do, it's not going to get the the results. It's probably if they think like, oh, you need to try it this other way. It's probably something that they've already tried. There's extent. a lot of or is so bogged echoes. down by bureaucratic bullshit, you know. There, there's just, a lot of can't get anything done. There, there's a lot it's of similarity. <laughs> there's a lot of similarity sorry, sorry. there. Oh, you're fine. There's a lot of similarity <laughs> there between the the rhetoric that gets used uh, towards religious organizations to say like, oh, keep your religious morality in the church on Sunday, um, and it, it, this is something that goes as far back as <laughs> That's Thomas not Jefferson. The point. What? Said what? that's not the point. That's yeah, not right. the point, it's, you know. It's it's like well this goes back to Thomas Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptist, right? He says, like, you you know, you we're we're gonna keep religion free for you to practice as this individual belief, but like denying the fact that certain ideas and certain claims about truth demand a public expression in such a way that we can't just confine them to a particular building at a particular time on a particular day of the week that then doesn't go beyond the doors of that building. Like what what we frequently get told in America is that if you have a moral conviction, that is fine. You can have that moral conviction, but you have to keep that moral conviction within a particular context where it is acceptable to have that moral conviction. 
and where the ramifications of that moral conviction aren't going to affect the lives of others. Because at the end of the day, your moral conviction is just your own individual expression of your liberty. It's, it's Mill, right? It goes back to, to John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. Um, right. and, and it just fundamentally ignores the fact that these claims about justice and about truth cannot exist in that context. Or if they can, they don't mean anything anymore. Um, you know, if, if I believe in a religion that says all human life is sacred then I cannot live, and I, I sincerely believe in that religion, I cannot live in such a way that allows for human life to be exploited or told that it's not worth what I believe it is worth. And so that's why King's expecting help from, from, uh, from religious leaders, right? Because most religions make that claim to a certain extent. Right. Uh, and you're barred from the expression of that claim because we're told, well, you know, your, your convictions stay in this area. And, and then it goes as far as, as philosophy, right? You know, you keep your, your philosophy in your academic circles, in your academic buildings, and you keep your philosophy for your philosophy classroom. But, you know, really, what use does Plato have outside of a discussion with a bunch of other nerds about why Plato is important? Um, well, the answer is it's actually super important because Plato's telling you he's making claims about reality, he's making claims about justice, and if we believe that these claims are true, if we are convinced by the argument, we need to express that conviction in a way that is that, that, that actually indicates that we believe these things. And so to be told, well, your protest is untimely, is to basically say, yeah, well, you can, you, it's nice that you believe that, but it's going to interfere with, with the way that I want to live. And so you're not allowed to actually express that in a meaningful way. Uh, right. And I think that's just a pervasive problem throughout the entirety of America. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I that's totally right. And, um, you know, right after this, um, do either of you have anything more to add before we keep going? Uh, no, I'm going to save my Hegel comments for the white moderate section. Yeah. Uh, that's where it becomes relevant because I had comments about Hegel as well. Yeah, <laughs> I he's sort of indi- indi- I think he's sort of indirectly indirectly responding to Hegel, but um, so now we get this this section of of the letter that um, we played at the beginning, uh, narrated by James Earl Jones, and you can find that clip on YouTube. It's just out there um, where he's reading excerpts from the letter. Um, and this Does is he read the, the whole letter in that I, clip. He doesn't read the whole letter. He reads okay. uh, mostly the beginning, mostly the beginning okay. of it. Um, but he does read this paragraph, and this is, I mean, this is one of the <laughs> most hard-hitting paragraphs. I mean, I think it's the most hard-hitting paragraph of the whole document, um, and is incredibly um, well-written and very vivid um, and uh, heart-wrenching, because he, he's just describing uh the black experience you know for (laughs) you you can tell just how how patient and gentle martin luther king is (laughs) considering that he is not expressing furious anger and rage all the time after describing something like this you know talking about the way that his family and his neighbors are treated you know um this is like their everyday existence and this is just 
people accept it like nothing's wrong, and they expect us to just go along with it. Um, and how terrible that is. Uh, so he, he really doesn't pull any punches here. Um, he he makes a, a litany of um, instances in which in which black people are just oppressed you know they're 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 total they're totally cast aside um and in many ways you know obviously thing you know king wrote this in 1963 obviously some things have changed over the past 57 years but there is a striking amount of similarity between uh between what king says in this letter as a whole and right here in this paragraph um and what what is going on what is still going on today i mean when you think about it 60ish years is not a long time at all um you know it it, it hasn't even no, been 60 really years not. since he was assassinated um and so <laughs> It's not a huge stretch to say that many of the things he's addressing are still are still happening, still present today. So this this very vivid uh, paragraph, even though we're not dealing with segregation necessarily, um, you know, there aren't segregation laws anymore. But I don't think it would be much of a stretch to find places where there are segregated communities based off of the the strong arming of institutions that are able to, you know, try to filter their desired demographics into whatever situations they want. Um, you know, redlining is a classic example of, of a way ways of, you know, ke keeping black people out of white neighborhoods or, or just controlling who is in your neighborhood. You know, it, it's, it's a way of preventing um, a sort of equality that, isn't directly breaking any laws. Um, well, I so, have a separate observation about that, but I, I do want to finish talking about the the part you're go ahead, talking go ahead. about. Yeah, so, well, no, no, yeah, it, it, it has just, to do with what example. gets done later. Done. Well, so I think in this particular case, it's really important that he's articulating the phenomenological experience of the black American here. Um, yes. Because it's really hard. It, it's, it's one thing to articulate a philosophical idea, Right, and to say, hey, this is the argument that is being had. And there are people that, like, respond better to, oh, this is this makes sense, it's reasoned out, it's logical, I like it. But I, I think it's also safe to say that the vast majority of people are going to respond more uh, effectively and respond in a stronger way to an articulation of an experience. This is why phenomenology is an important philosophical innovation, because it, it yes. takes lived reality, lived experience... And it says, like, hey, we interact with the world in this way. This is how I am interacting with the world. And it's very difficult to convey our interactions with the world to other people. And so this is an attempt yes. to do that. And I think it's a really good attempt to do that because it's not an analytical, like, there are cases where this happens. Um, if King were to say, like, to take all of the points in this and say, like, you know, to, 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 to boil them down to, like, a, a, a analytical point, like, you know, uh, American blacks have to deal with uh, segregation. They are called names. Uh, 
their children are upset a lot. Uh, it doesn't have the same impact as the way that this is articulated. Um, so right. I think that's a, an important philosophical thing to get at is that it's not just a work of rhetoric or literature when you articulate an experience in a way that is moving. It is a, I mean, it is primarily a work of literature or rhetoric, uh, but it is also a philosophical thing as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we, we can't ignore the, the importance of phenomenology in this, uh, this aspect of the letter that he's saying, like, this is an experience that I've had. And he's articulating that experience in a way that we might not be able to understand it in the same. It's like not we're not living the experience, but we are now made aware of the experience, and that, from a philosophical perspective, is important. Yeah, um, um, yeah. It becomes much easier to to recognize that experience as legitimate because you can sort of. I mean, you can't experience it yourself if you've never experienced it, but you can begin to see where he's coming from you can sort of begin to put yourself in his shoes um and under understand what that experience is like i think is the big part and why the the phenomenological understanding is so the phenomenology here is so important is that describing it this way allows us to understand what it's like in spite of not experiencing it ourselves and even though we can't understand it to the same extent um that's the most effective way of helping us understand it uh, without experiencing it. So you're, you're absolutely right. Um, so after this paragraph, he gets on to, there, there's another um, sort of platitudinous uh, moment here that people like to quote that isn't necessarily in context. Um, and uh, this might be worth reading in full. Um, so he's addressing another point made by the um, made by the the um, the religious leaders. He says, uh, "You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. Uh, this is certainly a legitimate concern, since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954 outlawing segregation in the public schools. It is rather strange and paradoxical to find us consciously breaking laws. One may well ask." How can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer is found in the fact that there are two types of laws. There are just laws, and there are unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. And people like to parrot that, but... I feel well, that, like, that's, yeah, we need to recognize I, where I that's mean, coming from, because that's, that's from to, City of God. Um, yeah, and also, not only that, but like, People diminish what that means all the time. People think an unjust law. I, I have experienced people, or and, and I've seen people justify breaking certain laws on this ground that they think it's an unjust law, and it's like, well, no, um, because he's going to explain here in a second what that really means. Um, so he says, now what is the difference between the two? How does one determine when a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law, or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. All segregation statutes are unjust, 
because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. It gives the segregator a false sense of superiority and the segregated a false sense of inferiority. To use the words of Martin Buber, the great Jewish philosopher, segregation, segregation institutes and substitutes Segregation substitutes an I-it relationship for the I-thou relationship and ends up relegating persons to the status of things. So segregation is not only politically, economically, and sociologically unsound, but it is morally wrong and sinful. Paul Tillich has said that sin is separation. Isn't segregation an existential expression of man's tragic separation, an expression of, of his awful estrangement, his terrible sinfulness? So I can urge men to obey the 1954 decision of the Supreme Court because it is morally right, and I can urge them to disobey segregation ordinances because they are morally wrong. Um, and just a, an incredible explanation that really cuts to the heart of it, um, and really cuts to the gravity of you know what it means for a law to be just or unjust. You know, a just law uplifts human personality, an unjust law degrades human personality. So something like drinking laws, I really don't think it degrades a person's personality to not to be allowed to drink not alcohol be allowed, when you're 20. Not be, not be allowed to drink alcohol when you're 20. You know, I really don't think it degrades a personality. Honestly, Does in it degrade cases, your personality if beer hasn't been invented yet? Like, you know? Maybe, maybe, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but honestly, I would say that probably in more cases than not, it degrades people's personalities when they go out of their way to drink a lot before they're legally allowed to, you know? And, and that's a whole different discussion, um, and I'm not condemning anyone, but, like, you can see how trivial that example is compared to something like segregation laws, you know? Like, to, to say that drinking law is an unjust law and have that be a justification for underage drinking is just silly i mean yeah it really is regardless of what, regardless of whether or not it's a it's a good law or, or it could it would make more sense for it to be 18 or whatever you know that's a whole separate discussion and how its level of moral necessity is a whole different discussion yeah but yeah. it's its level of importance is just nothing compared compared to this and i i have unfortunately uh, i think some people tend to use this justification basically just to allow them to break whatever laws they want. And I'd be lying if I said that, like, you know, I think speed limit laws are sometimes unfair, but I don't think I can justify saying that they're unjust. But um, even though in my head I'd like to think so because I want to go however fast I want to go. But that again, that's me being selfish um, and not actually... <laughs> I don't think it degrades my personality to not be able to drive 75 well, or whatever. Well, it's this, it's this, the simple is he, he lays it so, like, you know, let's lean on that paragraph because you said it. He puts it so bare. A, a law is unjust when it degrades the personality. So you've got, like, this sort of dead band region where, like, yeah, a law is not very well crafted maybe, but it's not unjust. Yeah. Um. It might not necessarily be just, but it's not unjust. And it, like you said, it's it's a totally different argument to get into. But I think in general, we can all agree that if you if as long as it's as long as it's not unjust, laws are better than no laws. Yeah, I I think I would agree with that. There's it's um, it was well, yeah it's Socrates really, you know social obligation. I think it's really but, important that he explicitly quotes Augustine and Aquinas here. Because yeah. there's there's the there's implications in this letter that are important, and one of them is like, hey, 
you want to know more about the stuff I'm referencing, go read the stuff that I'm referencing, if you haven't already. Uh, and and St. Thomas and St. Augustine do go into excruciating detail about just yeah. and unjust laws. Um, like, you know, it's not an ambiguous term. Like, even, the you know, something that degrades the human personality, that's a very poignant and important uh thing to acknowledge when we're talking about just and unjust laws and, and that we absolutely should use that as a metric but it itself is really vague um and and here king is implying like you know i am summing up all of the conditions yeah. that augustine and aquinas are giving here by saying a law that degrades personality you want to know what it means to degrade personality sick i have this awesome book for you called the Summa Theologica, which is like a yeah. thousand pages long. Uh, but well, the, and the other right, thing there's... too is that he would have known he would have known that his audience would be familiar with these people. You know, he's yeah. writing to these religious leaders. He knows that they've read Augustine and Saint Thomas. You know, he mm-hmm. he knows that they know what he's talking about. Uh, and so, but... it, using them in this argument is going to be v- very compelling because um, mm-hmm. they they're going to have a hard time disagreeing with <laughs> with him. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's once again, it's one of those really uh, well-crafted uses of rhetoric. Um, yeah. Where it's, it, it is rhetoric, right? He's including people that appeal to his audience. But, like, in addition to it being a rhetorical tool, it is also just true, right? Like, he's saying, like, hey, we're making appeals to, like, someone that you would be familiar with. But, like, it's not – the only reason that I'm doing this is not because I know that you'll – have some affinity for Augustine and Aquinas, but because I actually think they're saying something worth reading and listening yes. to. Yeah, it's just, a, it's just a strategic use of, I could say a million different things that are true, but I'll say the one thing that's true that I know you hold to be true also. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a nice intersection between, you know, truth and, and, um, and rhetoric, you know, that they sort of come together there. Um, yeah, and then he says, uh, oh, and then he makes another distinction between uh, just and unjust laws. Um, he says, an unjust law is a code that a majority inflicts on a minority that is not binding on itself. This is difference Big. made legal. On the other hand, a just law is a code that a majority compels a minority to follow and that it is willing to follow itself. This is sameness made legal. I, I, I mean, I think this naturally addresses what we've been talking about this naturally addresses um you know the the uh the current situation in america with um protests and police brutality and that sort of thing is that part of what has spurred on these protests is that for too long the police get away with these these sorts of uh crimes that no one everyone else agrees are bad and people should be held accountable for them and the police just get away with it they they they're not a majority necessarily you know cops aren't necessarily a majority but they're a majority in terms of, of power you know well, they, they they have more more sway or more more room to abuse their power so to speak well, and and they yeah. can, they can get away with um not allowing those laws to be binding on themselves, you know, even if they kill I, someone, they don't. I think it. They don't have to be bound by those same laws that everyone else does, and and are basically immune. It's I, the same thing I, with many politicians. You know, they don't have to because of the way that 
our system sort of runs, um, in, you know, in theory, they should suffer the same punishments as any normal citizen, but too often they don't. And I think the common factor is money, but I mean, that's a separate What you said about cops, I think it, I think it goes beyond that though. Um, where like, yes, uh, cops are the, the police are the actual physical extension of like the, the, the enforcing extension of society. But it, it, we all know that when he says the majority, when Martin Luther King Jr. says the majority, he's talking about the white majority of citizens. Yes. Um, yeah. I was they, just they applying vote, it to today. They vote yeah. in their interest. Yes. Everyone votes in their interest as you should. If you do That's not true. vote, if you do not vote in your interest, who is going to? Only you can really know what is in your interest as well as you can. You know, I'm not saying you always know what's in your best interest, but like you've got the best potential. So like, you know, I'm not faulting people for voting in their interests, but when they don't rec- when you don't when you are fundamentally different, when you come from a different familial background, and when I say familial background, I mean did your family come over on a boat as slaves like a couple hundred years ago? Or have you been living here for a very long time and have lots of property? Yeah. Um, And and you you vote in your interests. And what ends up happening is because, because I mean, it's, it's been, it's been ingrained in American politics forever that money, money is voting power. Um, It effectively is anyway. Yeah. Um, I mean, I back agree. back in the day before social media, before there was the internet or technology, uh, back in the day it was just a matter of finding ways to pass laws where only rich people were technically voters, you know, only landowners. Yeah. Um, and, you know, now it's through manipulating media. But what, what he's really getting at here is black Americans live a separate reality than white Americans do. And I think a lot of white Americans literally fail to see that. And what King Jr. is touching on is that the laws might on paper apply to all of us. It is actually codified. It it is 100%. It is like actual science that blacks are are prosecuted and and convicted at higher rates for the same exact crimes where like white people will be tried and have like, you know, they, they have certain levels of, you know, it's, I I don't know how the studies are performed, but you, they're peer reviewed. So you can expect, you know, you can trust that they're done with some level of uh, objectivity. They get charged at way higher rates and have way more extreme sentences. And that is, and that is, even with laws that technically don't even address black people explicitly, it's implicit that they're living under this tyranny of the majority. Yeah. But one of the other, yeah, yeah, and, that's and, all great. Well, I, I was, I just wanted to clarify yeah. first that, um, real quick that, uh, you were right, Brad. And I, I was kind of missing the point that the majority here in this, in this case, in modern times is, is, is that, you know, broadly speaking, white people either directly or indirectly just support the, the cops. And that yeah, it really, it's, yeah. It, today so, it's relevant so it because of systematic, majority, yeah. yeah, it's a systematic racism thing today. Yeah. And back then mm-hmm. it was like the laws actually were like, if you're black, you can't go here. But yeah. today it doesn't say that anymore, but it, it exists because you've, you've got all of these. I mean, it's, it's, it's in our brains. Like we stereotype people and 
yeah, it's I, it, you you lightly said it there for a second, and you know that's something I even failed to mention is so you know laws are enforced differently depending on your skin color, but then the worst one is the white people don't see it, and then what they do is they support the police, they support the laws, and they look at black people getting arrested and say, well, you must have deserved it because the laws are the same for you and me, pal. And right. then and then what that does is it reinforces the stereotypes and it's a positive feedback loop. And by positive, I mean it's not a good thing. Positive yeah. does not mean it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, it's a positive feedback loop where like each factor feeds into and creates more of the other factor, which in turn creates more of the initial factor. Yes. And it goes back and forth and it spirals. The only way to get out of it is through immense amounts of outside energy. And like, I, I don't mean to boil it down into mathematics, but like, I, I, I think that it applies is that when you have a positive feedback loop like that, you cannot expect the system that exists that's creating that loop to resolve itself. It cannot. You actually, you, you at its core, require an outside agitator. I'm, I'm going to use King's words, and by that I mean uh, you need to something outside of this system, this positive feedback loop, to come in and disrupt it, to stop it. And that's, yeah. where, and that's where the protests come in. Yeah. That, is, that is the outside energy it's, where it's you're, like, you're, you're taking the system and breaking it to let that energy dissipate. Yeah, it's like but, you're putting on the brakes, and, and it's like a brake check, and so it sort of causes a collision. Yes. Yeah, and there's, um, there's except what there's if except what if the brakes? What if? Oh, go ahead, Brad. I was just gonna say, what if what if the brakes made the car go faster? So, <laughs> as you're no, I'm serious. So like as you're speeding up, you pump the yeah, that will make you pump the brakes. But then oh no, we're speeding up even more now. I better pump the brakes even harder. But you don't know it. But pumping the brakes is actually what's speeding things up. So you need an outside source to come in and stop that, and sometimes that means destruction of the vehicle. Well, uh, my suggestion was just that, like, putting on the brakes, yeah, yeah, no, I, I really like the vehicle. There's the sense of urgency. Oh yeah, no, no, I, I, your analogy is good. I was just taking that analogy and changing it into something else, where I'm saying like that's, you know, that's that's the nature of what's happening here is. There's there's an unknowing like it's it's people it's. There's this un, unknowing uh, cataclysmic sort of interaction that's yeah. it's already it's already hit the event horizon. Yeah. The point of no going back. What were you gonna say, Joe? Joe. Well, so this is I I yeah I think everything you said for the most part I would agree with. Um, uh, the thing that I want to talk about though is that we're we're, we're trying to apply this to now, right? Because King is saying, well, you know, we're breaking unjust laws here. Uh, and, and yeah, you, you guys all touched on this. There, there aren't exactly laws out there saying, like, hey, if you're black, you can't go into the store. But there, there are implicit practices, and this is what Alexis de Tocqueville would call mores, right? They're habits of the heart. They're uh, conditions that are ingrained in our, our culture that have the force of law to a certain extent. Like, you know, it, it custom acts in a way that exercises a certain modicum of force on us. And so when King's talking about unjust laws, he's th this, the, the, the logic carries over to unjust mores. Um, 
And I, I think that's something that needs to be made clear, right? So, like, to say that, um, you know, to breaking, to, that it's necessary to break an unjust law, because that's really what he's arguing here, right? Uh, is yeah, that, you know, if we is. are in the presence of an unjust law, uh, the fact that the law is obscuring good, it demands that it be broken. And this is, this comes again straight from City of God. This when Augustine's talking about unjust laws, his, his context is laws that prevent Christians from worshiping under pain of death. And Augustine is saying, like, this is well, one of the instances where you don't follow the law. Um, you need to break the law. And you need to work to have a situation where that law does no, not exist any longer because that law prevents the good from being actualized. And so when you yeah, apply the same logic the law, to... Yeah, by following the law, you've done something sinful. Yeah. Uh, and so by applying the same logic of, of laws to mores, right, habits of the heart... Um, the the it, it it still holds true, right? It is necessary for us to actively take a part in breaking unjust mores or going against unjust mores because it's not it doesn't work in the same exact way. But the logic carries through when something is institutionalized in such a way that it prevents the good from being achieved. That thing demands its own destruction, um, and. It's, it's, there's, I don't know, there's quite a bit of charged rhetoric that gets behind a phrase like demand destruction. Um, and I think in this yeah. case, it really means this is like, it needs to no longer exist. Um, and it requires yeah. action to no longer exist. Uh, and so this, this applies to now in the same, in a very similar way as it applied in 1967? When was this letter written? I forgot. This was written in 1963. 1963. Um, right, the, the logic still applies the same. And that, that, that was my point for this, right, that, that mores come into this. This is another political philosophy implication that we can take from this letter because I think it's really easy to read this and be like, well, yeah, the laws technically apply. Um, and before you even get into, like, the, the discussion of, like, well, the laws are not applied evenly, which is something that he talks about later as well, um, yeah. it's important to, to acknowledge that the, the inherent logic of this statement um, still holds true for, like, a, a personal level of racism as well as institutionalized racism. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, and it, just a few paragraphs down, too. He, I mean, he touches on the fact, he says... Uh, he says there are some instances when a law is just on its face and unjust in its application. And so, so this could be any number of things. Um, you know, Brad, you made that, um, uh, comment about how, you know, the, per the, the white person might say like, well, you know, we all, we're all subject to the same laws. So you must've done something wrong and it contributes to that positive feedback loop. Like you said, um, it, not so, I mean, the, the, the way that you apply these laws and how, you know, how you apply them in the context in which you apply them matters. I'll one up you. So, well, so he he says it here. He's gonna one up everything here. He says, uh, um, for instance, I was arrested Friday on a charge of parading without a permit. Now there is nothing wrong with an ordinance which requires a permit for a parade, but when the ordinance is used to preserve segregation and to deny citizens the First Amendment privilege of peaceful assembly and peaceful protest, then it becomes unjust. And so you can think of 
any number of, th- of things today in which in which people have a right to something. Um, I, I think a common one happening now is that people in, who are being arrested are being denied um, lawyers and outside co- contact, like contact with their families. I saw that just yesterday, that uh, a lot of people are being denied um, a right to a lawyer and a right to, to contact their families after they've been imprisoned. And that that is just a straight up abuse of a law, you know, whatever justification that they give for not permitting that, like that's denying people their rights. Um, and there, there are plenty of, of laws like that, um, that in in which they are applied differently depending on who is there at the time and what exactly, you know, law enforcement wants to accomplish or the government wants to accomplish. Yeah, um, well... Clear, yeah, go ahead. What I was going to say it's when I was saying uh, I'll one-up you is it it goes beyond... I, I see it. It goes beyond law. Um, a lot of people call for law and order. Like, it's that's just a, a good concept, you know, is law and order, peacefulness. On a surface level, yeah. These are, these are These are good things, or at least in the hearts of the people claiming, like, the... The moderate, the one who wants as little conflict as possible, the person trying to maintain the status quo, whether they know it or not, that they're trying to maintain the status quo. People saying we need to negotiate and do peaceful protests, not uh, not riot in a disruptive way that's like causing damage. Um, and I and and I don't mean to be implying that just randomly damaging people's cars and small businesses is actually helpful to anybody. Um, But I just mean in general the idea of like what happens when citizens and groups of people in history riot. In a lot of cases, like that's kind of all they had left. Like you could argue about what the best way to do it would be. But um, what I'm really saying is I I think that all of these calls for civility are just a means of shutting people up. And that's exactly what Martin Luther King says at the beginning of this letter. And he says, say well, we are told to wait. Too. We are told to wait. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he does. I know. And he said, he's, he, that's like the first thing that I thought of, though, when I, when I very first started reading it. And then he says, you know, he starts to talk about it here. And I'm like, that's definitely like what he had in mind when he started writing it. It's, it's just always all of these good ideals are really just used as a way to deny justice. Yeah. And he's going to make the point later that, that, um, you know, the people who call for order, <laughs> I mean, it's sort of an order without justice um, and with a, a, a sort of fake or, or false sense of peace. Um, but peace but I, really to them just means the lack of the lack of tension. And we'll get to that later. That's toward the end. Yeah, because um, there's there's more, I think, from the the perspective of the philosophy that he's using to back up his claims that would suggest that there's an order without justice isn't a true order. Um, but that's, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, yeah. So let's see, what else do I have here? We talked about human personality. We've talked about, I'm sorry, I, I'm just speaking out loud. That's okay. Where are we now, uh, Nathan? Uh, you, you're tracking I this better than can, me. Yeah. Uh, he makes brief mention of other, um, civil di- instances of si- civil disobedience and like just and unjust laws. You know, he makes mention of how everything that Hitler did in Germany was legal um, and the Hungarian freedom fighters, um, in Hungary, they were doing something that was technically illegal, you know, um, 
it, you know, it was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. Um, but he's, you know, he's calling, he's appealing to um, the religious leaders' um, Christianity and their, their sense of moral righteousness by saying, you know, it, I'm sure that if I lived in Germany during that time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers, even though it was illegal. If I lived in a communist country today where certain principles dear to the Christian faith are suppressed, I believe I would openly advocate disobeying these anti-religious laws, as I'm sure these religious leaders often would do. You know, it's, e it's easy to condemn these things in hindsight, you know, and now something similar is happening right at their doorstep in their own counties, and they're not, uh, they're not following through. Um, so he, he's appealing to their better sensibilities there. Um, and then this is where he starts talking about the white moderate. Um, and uh, so he, he, starts, he starts by saying, I must make two, confession, two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Um, I mean, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where to begin with that, just... Um, because I don't know if I could really do it justice. I can't. I can't really say it better than, than he has said it. Um, but th th this is still very much an issue that that um, it is so easy to be completely complacent about matters of racial justice, um, even today, and that's sort of where this term white moderate comes from. It's, it comes from the recognition that like people are very complacent with how things are and would rather things stay the way they are than even be inconvenienced enough to let other people be free. Um, they're, they're not willing to step in at all. They're not willing to in, they're not willing to risk even a little bit of their their own freedom and, and liberties uh, for the sake of someone else. Uh, it, it's so easy to dismiss um, the goals of direct action, the, the, the civil rights movement, and of today to say that, like, I just don't agree with your methods. Those are wrong. It's like, okay, well, not uh, even in Martin, Luther's, Martin Luther King's day, you know, people were doing it differently. He wasn't the only civil rights activist, um, but he was he did stand out because he was, he, he championed nonviolent protests. Um, but there were violent protests at the time. Um, and he talks about that in a little bit. Um, but it, it's so, it's so easy to sort of, to, to say, well, I, I just, I don't agree with your methods because they're too disruptive. Even the nonviolent ones are like, well, they're, they're too disruptive. Um, and, and so this is sort of what we were just talking about a second ago that it, 
yeah, I, I think you're right, Joe, that he would say that you can't have true order without true justice, but he makes his point very very eloquently when he, he um, very convincingly when he, he he talks about a sort of negative piece, which, you know, I, I, I'm sure when push comes to shove is not really peace at all, but it's peace on a surface level. Negative peace, which is the absence of tension versus a positive peace that is the presence of justice. You know, it, it, things are technically peaceful because there's no conflict when, there, when there's no conflict, but that doesn't mean that nothing's wrong. Um, and this is a pretty damning accusation of the white moderate because the white moderate just wants no conflict. They don't care if It'd things are bad. It'd be pretty peaceful right after nuclear war. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't mean the world's in a good state. Right, exactly. You know, it, it's... Um, uh, where, where was it going with that? Um, it's, it's easy to be complacent when it doesn't affect you. And so that results in this sort of negative peace in which... Well, it, it doesn't affect me, so it, it, as long as there's no conflict, I don't care what happens. doesn't matter to me. Um, it, that doesn't mean that that is okay. It doesn't mean that the world is right. Um, it doesn't mean that there is justice. Um, and that that's pretty bad, I think, for, to, to just be totally indifferent for whatever reason, whether it's, just, uh, you know, full-on nihilism or, or cynicism or, or what have you that, that prevents you from acknowledging that you know there is actually um something better that could be done and you know it if i even budged myself was willing to budge myself a little bit um huge strides could be made um basically the the, the claim is that the white moderate has done nothing and in many cases today that's still the case I mean, I think it goes back to the the logic of the earlier statement about just and unjust laws, right? Like there there is there isn't here a specific call for a group of people to do something because it is harming them. It's not a call to serve your interest. It's a call well, right. to serve the good. And right. if you're serving the good, then you act in particular ways. You let your convictions play out. And if you aren't actually acting in a way that allows your convictions to play out, the it calls into question your convictions. Um, and and that too, yeah. it goes back to the beginning of the letter where he says you are good people. Um, he is saying here, this is this is the challenge that I was talking about earlier. He's saying like you you clearly have these convictions, and it's good that you are you know in this sort of. It, it is not, I guess, not good, but it, it's, it's, you haven't taken them to the extent where it actually proves to me that you have had these, you have these convictions. Um, he's telling us that we need to act in a way that coincides with our convictions. And I don't think that you need to interpret this as Martin Luther King Jr. saying everyone needs to go out and engage in, in nonviolent protest like he's doing, right. but I think he, he is very clearly saying, like, you can't just sit by complacently, you can't be quiet about this um, in the capacities that you have, you need to challenge your yourself to reevaluate, you need to, and, and in doing so, you And the you're people going around to, you. Yeah, and the people around you, and, and in doing so, you're going to precipitate action to a certain yes. extent. Um, and I, yeah, that, that's that's one of the key things that I'm getting out of the 
the speech about the the white or not the speech right but just the section about the white moderate um yeah there's also the the hegel connection here which is just a fun little philosophy thing that you can get if you've read hegel you can see how clearly the idea that oh we're placing another man's freedom on on a timetable coincides with the hegelian view of the unfolding of history Um, well and it that comes into play even more more explicitly later um Uh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, the the thing that I I have in my notes yeah, is, read, right, read is, li- is the well, yeah read a little read a little bit ahead and read the section that you're talking about. Not just the timetable yeah. part, but there's a part right after that. Um, yeah. Um. Oh shoot, where is that in the? Oh, can you read it? Because I don't know where it is in the. Sure, right sure. Now. Um. Yeah, yeah. So he says. Um, I had also hoped that the white moderate would reject the myth of time. I received a letter this morning from a white brother in te- excuse me, I have hiccups. From a white brother in Texas which said, All Christians know that the colored people will receive equal rights eventually. <laughs> excuse me. But is it possible that you are in too great of a religious hurry? It has taken Christianity almost two thousand years to accomplish what it has. The teachings of Christ take time to come to to come to earth. All that is said here grows out of a tragic misconception of time. It is this strangely irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. Excuse me. Yep. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's... Actually, that's, time is... Yeah. <laughs> that's straight out of Hegel, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the, he's, the, he's the white moderate is, is tied to a Hegelian view of history. Um, yeah. Because we're, we're willing to say, like, yeah, this is a bad thing, but now's not the time where it's going to get better. It'll, But it will get better in the future, you just gotta let history unfold to the point where this part of the universal is actualized. Um, It'll happen eventually. Yeah, and and there's such a level of complacency here that I that that is characteristic of a Hegelian form of philosophy uh, that I don't know, like it just it it rings so hollow in real experience. So this is just yes, a, I don't know, like it, this is maybe getting too much into the problems that I have with Hegel, but like. You this was, look at I mean, Hegelian this, philosophy and you say, this doesn't actually help us do anything. Uh, this is this just would, this a... Would a make, this would make Woodrow ahead. Wilson blush. Well, yeah, and Woodrow Wilson is... It's important to, to bring up Wilson in this respect because a, a big aspect of King's uh, critique here is of the the system of American progressivism that is so heavily reliant on a Hegelian Darwinian view of both history and politics uh, that won't account for real personal experience that doesn't take the phenomenological experiences of the citizens of the United States into account and just attempts to impose this academically contrived order upon the world. Um, right. It's, it, it, there is a, so there's a, there's a separate broader philosophical critique here. And then there's a specific critique of the politics, the political philosophy that is the, probably the most prominent political philosophy in the United States. Um, so that, yeah, I think it's, there's, there's a double whammy with this statement about the white moderate. Yeah. Um, um it's something that, I think it's worth that, it oh, to, go ahead. Go on. Uh, I, I just said I think it's worth it to finish the quote. Um, mm-hmm. From there, he says, actually, time is neutral. 
it can be used either destructively or constructively. I am coming to feel that the people of ill will have used time much more effectively than the people of goodwill. Also a very damning accusation. Uh, we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. We must come to see that human progress never rolls on its wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and persistent work of men willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. Um, so yeah, it just reinforces your point, too. He says it very art artfully there. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability like Hegel and Marx think. Um, it just doesn't happen that way. Uh, there's nothing that necessitates this uh this progression that you're talking about um and and the the worst part of it too is that you know people work people work hard to make progress and the people who have made the post progress are the people we don't want to make progress you know the people of ill will the people who are bad basically yep it, it, this is the part of his this is the part of his letter where i just don't even want to say anything because i'm just like nice yeah. <laughs> well said. Yeah. I mean, seriously. Um, uh, there, there's a passage yeah. that follows this. Um, I'm trying to find this specific passage, but I have in my notes the, and this is very much towards the end. So I don't know if you guys have more that you want to want to say about the in between stuff. I guess we could talk about the disappointment with the the church, but I. Um, I well, I we'll know get to that how, in a second, but. Well, right, right here he talks about, like, uh, we, we should talk about it, um, but um, before we do that, let's touch on, uh, I think Brad mentioned it earlier, his, his um, being labeled an extremist. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we should touch on this section. Um, basically, he, he also talks about being an, extreme, an extremist as a neutral thing itself. It depends on what you were an extremist of. So he talks about some more violent um, protests. Uh, so, for example, he um, mentions... Um, he, he, he mentions that there are complacent blacks, black communities, um, because they've, you know, if you've been oppressed for long enough, it's easy to fall into that... Um, it's, it's easy to fall, in, fall into that... Um, that complacency, but it, different than the other kind. It's just like, what can we do? It's sort of a hopelessness. Um, and they've sort of adjusted to their lifestyles, it says, he says. Um, and then, uh, you know, those who have been more successful, they've, they're also a little uh, less uh, participatory, he says, because they become insensitive to the problems of the masses. So that's one side of it. And then he says the other side, he says, um, there's another force uh, he says, one of bitterness and hatred and comes perilously close to advocating violence. It is expressed in the various black nationalist groups that are springing up over the nation, the largest and best known being Elijah Muhammad's Muslim movement. This movement is nourished by the contemporary frustration over the continued existence of racial discrimination. is made up of people who have lost faith in America, who have absolutely repudiated Christianity, and who have concluded that the white man is an incurable devil. Um, and he says, I have tried to stand between these two forces. 
so the first thing he does is says, "Listen, I'm not the if I'm an extreme if I'm an extremist, I'm not the kind of extreme extremist you think I am." Um, but then he says that you know what makes it seem extreme is the sort of human spirit, this longing for freedom that motivates people to seek it out. I'm paraphrasing heavily, summarizing heavily. Um, so, as far as he's concerned, he says his his course of nonviolent direct action is a healthy channel for these feelings of discontent to be released. You know, this is his approach is you think these they're extreme, you religious you religious leaders, you think they're the, my methods are extreme, but this is actually the healthiest attitude, the healthiest avenue for these feelings to come out. You know, it, it could be that these feelings are repressed and expressed through violence and confusion. Um, but this is like a healthy way of expressing these feelings. Um, I would say that Mr. Rogers would probably agree and probably did agree. Um, and the reason I bring it up is just because Mr. Rogers talked so much about healthy expression of the emotions. And it's, it's a aspect of our life that is often neglected. Um, you know, he, he say, I think he's saying something very legitimate here that, you know, this longing for freedom, it, it, it's a call to action. Um, and out of all of the courses of action a person could take, this is an incredibly good one and a healthy one. This is the right, uh, the right way to go about it. And it's being labeled extreme. And then, but then he says, well, as I continue to think about it, um, he, he says, I gradually gained a bit of satisfaction for being considered an extremist because then he starts to talk about other sorts of extremism. You know, it's, it's not all violence. He says Jesus is an extremist of love. You know, saying love your enemies is extremely extreme. Um, yes. That's a crazy thing to say. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. Um, Amos, a prophet of the Old Testament, an extremist for justice. Let justice roll down like waters and, righte and righteousness like a mighty stream. Uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, an extremist for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, he, he cites Martin Luther and to, you know, uh, reading him charitably, you know, Catholics love to, to knock on Martin Luther, but there is some salvageable theology. So this is my brief defense. There's some salvageable theology that he, Martin Luther King Jr. makes a, a, a good point in his favor too. He says, um, he quotes Martin Luther saying, here I stand, I can do no other. So help me God. And he is doing something revolutionary. So insofar as he's doing something like that, we can, you know, you don't have to get all up in arms about it. Um, we can read this charitably. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, an extremist, he quotes him, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, which is, I don't know how much, how much history had been done on Thomas Jefferson at the time this was written. You know, I don't know how public knowledge it was that Thomas Jefferson himself was not a great person and owned slaves and that sort of thing. Um, but it, even, even if so, it seems sort of beside Martin Luther King Jr.'s point, because he quotes him, you know, beginning of the, um, you know, declaration. The, the, the Declaration of Independence. I always, you know, confuse the beginning with the, <laughs> with the Constitution. With the preamble um, for the Constitution. Yeah, with the preamble for the Constitution. But uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Um, so the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Um, Will we be extremists for hate, or will we be, will we be extremists for love? Will, be, will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice, or will we be extremists for the cause of justice? And so, 
I really like his argument here because it's so easy. Again, this goes back to, back to the white moderate. It's so easy to say that your methods are too extreme. What you're doing is too extreme. Um, but there's a reason to be extreme about some of these things. You, you know, the, <laughs> if you if you can't be be extreme about racial injustice, what 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 is there to be extreme about? What what is what's what is serious enough to actually you know band together as as a people and and respond in a drastic way? You know what what is there that is serious enough if not something like racial injustice? Um, so I, I think that his his distinction here is very good and useful, um, and and strong. Um, and he acknowledges that some 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 white people have been helpful, and he 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 name drops some of them. Um, and so he he's not just being totally one sided here. He recognizes that some people have come to come to their aid and and been good, you know, have advanced the cause. Um, I, I really like his, uh, his statement here. He says, um, he's thankful, uh, that some of our white brothers have grasped the meaning of the social, this social revolution and committed themselves to it. They are still too small in quantity, but they are big in quality. Um, uh, Ralph McGill, Lillian Smith, Harry Golden and James Dabbs, and I haven't written anything they've written, but or read anything they've written, but, um, you know, he's being totally fair here. He's not just saying, none of you have come to help us. He's saying, here are the people who have helped us, and they've done a fantastic job. It's not a one-sided thing, you know, he, he's being very considerate to his um, interlocutors. Well, so yeah, I think it goes back to the very beginning when we got into that whole little discussion on his rhetoric and i said i i think he's just being so sincere yeah that i think you're right it's just coming off he's clearly a man masterfully who, like, cared more he's, about the tr- the truth than even his own personal feelings because maybe he's like i mean even and, when he's super angry he's probably like well i have to admit that like i can't be mad at all white people because like here they are helping us and he's he's making that very clear because he's like it would just be untrue to deny that some people have helped us but he's also he's he can say that without diminishing the the um the failure of the white moderate too you know he can say just how bad that's been while also you know he's he's not ignoring certain aspects of reality in order to advance his cause he is Instead, in order to artificially enhance in order, other yes, aspects of reality. In order to artificially enhance, it, rather he is speaking the truth and authentically enhancing his cause, I would argue. Yes, yes. Just because he doesn't ignore uh, basic realities around him. And, it, you know, yeah, it's, in good, a it's lot all of, in good faith. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, rhetorical expertise that is going in here, and it's all in good faith, and yeah. Um... All right, now we're on to sort of his last point, which is his disappointment with um, with the church, with religious institutions. Um, I've been talking a lot. Do you guys have anything to say in this I mean, section? I think I've got a point later on, but I want to let you guys. It goes to the talk. back to what I was saying earlier about demand, like claims of truth demand action, and he's recognizing very clearly. There's a great paragraph where he says there was a time when the church was very powerful. 
in the time yeah. when the early Christians rejoicing at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians persisted on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated, by their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often is it an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. Um, right, he, he's acknowledging very clearly here that like, the spirit of Christianity, and he's being specific, he's talking about Christianity here. The spirit of Christianity demands a, a active role for Christians when it comes to seeing and combating injustice. It, it demands yeah. it. It's part of the very nature of Christianity. Uh, we can see yes. that because that's what Christianity was like when it started and in its best iterations that is what it's like now but he's also acknowledging that as christianity uh, metastasizes becomes larger um it's really easy to in the service of defending the status quo uh not adhere to the convictions that you are obligated to adhere to as part of the basis of christianity uh and so he's like, you know, I don't think that it's fair to say that he's, like, I don't know, condemning the church, right? Uh, and I speak very broadly here. Um, right. I say the church, because he's not. He's saying that the inherent principles of the church demand this, but he is criticizing. He's saying, like, hey, you have a an obligation that you're not fulfilling, so start fulfilling it. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, he's, if he's anything, seeking reformation of action, not yeah. abolishment. And this this reminds me a lot. There are like there are so many historical examples aside from King that are good, but it, there are two that come to mind. First are the the Hebrew prophets, right? Um, we we sort of brought it up, but there's a very strong theme of the prophets in the Old Testament responding to injustice in radical ways that bring the tension. Uh, to the forefront. Um, you talk about Amos, right, who's walking around saying, like, it's good that the Israel's going to get destroyed by the, uh, oh, it's not the Babylonians that time. Is it the Babylonians? I can't remember. Um, I don't remember. I think it's either the Babylonians or the Assyrians. Either way, he's like, it's good that Israel's going to be destroyed by this because you guys are not adhering to the principles of justice. Like, you, know, you won't get destroyed if you start adhering to it, so I'm telling you now, but if you do get destroyed, that's probably a good thing. He's bringing the tension, he's making it clear. Uh, and then the second historical example that I'm thinking of uh, when it comes to sort of uh, bringing, making clear the injustices of the church specifically um, would be St. Francis of Assisi and St. Dominic, uh, so founder of the Franciscans and the Dominicans respectively. Uh, both of them are operating at a time when there was a systematic abuse of power within the church with indulgences and various other things. 
but rather than arguing for the abolition of these institutions or the, uh, I don't know what, like just uh, breaking off, they're saying, no, these things need reform because they themselves are good and they can be saved. And so we ought to save them. Uh, so, you know, King's not being an iconoclast here. Uh, I mean, there are certain aspects that I think he is being iconoclastic about, like laws that are unjust need to be destroyed. That's unambiguous here. Uh, but he's not saying, and this is really clear, he's not saying that, like, America itself needs to be destroyed uh, or right. everything about the the situation needs to be destroyed and, and done over. Um, there is a, a level of even-handed, like, hey, there's a problem here. And when he's talking specifically about the church, he's saying that it's it's a problem that you can fix very easily. It doesn't require a lot of effort on your part to just say, hey, I keep saying that I believe these things, so now I'm going to actually act like I do. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I always, I, I when I was reading this, I, I, I today I, I identified a sort of, an, an irony in, in, um, between what he's talking about and and um, with early Christianity and and modern Christians, because there are a lot of Christians that are, are very much, uh, you know, or at least in Catholic circles especially, and sometimes in in non in, in other Christian denominations too, um, that they want to either return to tradition or like get back to the roots of things, like the way that the early Christians did it, but they want to do that without the sort of radical behavior, because you know he he talks about this. Um, these uh um dis- he talks about these disturbers of the peace that Christians used to be um and outside agitators that they used to be um and when it comes to Christianity you know Christians are oftentimes like yes that was so amazing and great and valiant and good and virtuous but then you know people start to do it in response to racial injustice and they're like no don't do that you know, these same people who are supposedly uh, championing, that, uh, championing that sort of disturbing of the peace um, with regards to Christianity all of a sudden change their tone when it has to do with uh, racial racial justice. Um, and uh, it, it's almost like people don't, don't think of racial justice as real justice justice or is being in line with real justice like they're willing to do it for christianity or whatever or they're willing to say that they're willing to do it um and then when it comes to other issues they get they get shy they they're like well that's that's extreme that's uh you should you shouldn't be doing that that sort of thing it it disturbs the peace um it all of a sudden becomes a bad thing even though it's still at the service of justice it's it's like they think it's not at the service of justice, you know, it, it, that they push back on it. Yeah, I mean, it. it anyway, I think there's, a, there's an irony in there. There, that, there is, and I think yeah. we can tie that to the idea that there's a separation between the claims of the church and the claims of the. Uh, no, I'm not going to say the state because I don't want to get into that. Um, well, no, I am going to say it, right? That there's a separation between the claims of the church and the purported ends of the state, um, right? If you say that the end of the state is to, from an Aristotelian perspective, assist the populace in living the good life, right? And then the church is saying these are the conditions that make the good life. 
there needs to be on behalf of the Christian someone advocating in the public sphere for those things to these conditions to be met. Uh, and that in doing so, we need to acknowledge that, that justice is a large encompassing category that it that goes and ask, demands that we go beyond the doors of our churches. Uh, yeah, I think that's what I wanted to say. Um, yeah. Okay, um, anything else you want to touch on here? I've got a point to make toward, uh, a little closer to the end. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead and make it, because the, the yeah, last sure. point that I have is more of a big overarching ending point about political philosophy, so go ahead. Sure. Um, uh, so, so, um, he has a... A paragraph here. He says, I must close now, but before closing, I am impelled to mention one other point in your statement that troubled me profoundly. You warmly commended the Birmingham police for keeping order and preventing violence. I don't believe you would have so warmly commended the police force if you had seen its angry, violent dogs literally biting six unarmed, nonviolent Negroes. I don't believe you would so quickly commend the policemen if you would observe their ugly and inhuman treatment of Negroes here in the city jail. If you would watch them push and curse old Negro women and young Negro girls. If you would see them slap and kick old Negro men and young boys. If you would observe them, as they did on two occasions, refusing to give us food because we wanted to sing our grace together. I'm sorry that I can't join you in your praise for the police department. Um, so he, he describes all these offenses of the police. And this is, I'm not making like, I mean, police brutality is bad. All right. I feel like hopefully we can all agree on that at this point. Um, but that made me think, like, to, for someone to respond to that, you know, say, say say, someone says, this is my experience with the police. And someone says, well, that's always bad. Um, or if someone, you know, if someone highlights black experience here, and someone says, well, that's always bad. That's always a bad thing when it happens to anyone. Um, I was thinking about it. It, it, it. This paragraph is what made me think of it. Um, I think it defeats its own point to say that, like, well, this is always bad um, when it is clearly a, a racial crime um, or the product of systemic racism um, because it sees someone's pain and instead of compassion, instead of expressing compassion toward the person, um, the concern immediately diverts uh, to an unrelated party. You know, so if you really care about black people and this black person specifically, you know, why can't you do so without referencing something else? Why can't, you know, it's, they're saying, this is terrible when it happens to black people, like the police treat the treat us this way and, and it's awful and you respond by saying something like well that's bad when it happens to anyone or that's always bad you're immediately not sympathizing with that per person you're immediately diverting the your compassion away from them you're withholding it from that person in front of you making that claim um and so if you like you really cared about that person in front of you why can't you express that without immediately, you know, 
taking attention away from them, calling it to something else that you're thinking of, so, something that is on your mind. It can't just be about them. It's got to be about this other thing you're thinking about. Um, I think this that's is my an subtle way of saying because it's really easy to think what people would say if just a family member of yours ran up to you and said it. You believe them, and you would have a totally different reaction. Exactly. Than, uh, exactly. To sidestep. Um, exactly. I was thinking about that the other day too. If I said that to a family member, you, you know, no question. Um, and then anyway, what some people would say though, it really curious. funny is they're like, "Well, I have some family members." That you know, you never know. You can't really trust that family member. It's like, okay, is that how you view black people? You just can't trust them. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then it kind of that proves its own point. Like, I, yeah. it's like, okay, we don't even need to talk about police brutality because you know that that shit exists. If just your common person is so discriminatory. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, like, that's a very to... big. That's a very big check. It's a big checkmate moment. <laughs> well, well, yeah, and uh, so many people just don't even realize it. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So yeah, what I'm saying here, though, it, not what I'm saying. This is not a thing that I, I don't. I don't know what I'm saying. Sorry. Uh, what this comes down to is a denial of the phenomenological experience of the other. Right. It's a refusal yeah. to say because you are not me, I can't relate to your expression of your experience. And because I can't relate to the expression of your experience, I try to articulate it in the, the terms of my experience. But when your experience is so radically different from the person who is articulating their experience to you, you sort of come to a, a philosophical impasse where it, it's difficult to mm -hmm. conceive of how to proceed from that point. And the, the key thing that needs to happen then is a intentional effort to understand the phenomenological articulation that you are receiving um right you you can't you can't just try to re-articulate it in a way that you can comprehend because in doing so you're going to lose some of the substance right it, it does involve a lot of hard philosophical work on behalf of somebody who is uh being told something you have to now make an effort to understand it on their terms as well as your own yeah um because I, if you I would immediately just... try to re-articulate it in your terms you're going to lose perception of what is being gotten at yeah yep i i agree um and i would posit it, it is the responsibility of the the free thinker to work to try and understand it on the other person's terms um, yeah. Rather than confine it to your own, to your own understanding and definitions and perspectives, that sort of thing. Okay. Um. Did you have more to say, Joe? Not about this particular thing. I've got one more. Like this would be it, what I have left is my closing point. Okay. Yeah. Why don't we finish up and uh, make closing closing points, and then um, I want to finish by reading an earlier paragraph. I think that would be good. Sure. For so, closing and instilling some hope. My so big go ahead and yeah yeah. My big closing point is that there has to do with uh, some of the ending paragraphs here, because what a big emphasis here is the the goal of the American project. When he talks about the goal of the American project being freedom, um, and he 
says, you know, we because this is the goal of the American project, there is a strong hope that we can succeed in our, our efforts. Uh, and this is a particular claim that's been taken up by one of my favorite political philosophers, Harry Jaffa, um, who discusses in his book, The Crisis of the House Divided, and also in his book, The New Birth of Freedom, the the tension between the American ideal of liberty and freedom and the presence of slavery within the context of America. Um, and he basically says the that there is a, as long as these things exist, there is a, a tacit betrayal of the American ideal and that, that America cannot persist in the face of of slavery specifically, right? Because he's doing a case study on Abraham Lincoln um, mm-hmm. in both of these books. The logic then seems to follow, right, that, that people like to, there's like a phrase that I've heard, like, you know, racism is the, the great sin of America. And I think that's a pretty articulate way to put it. Um, I agree. Because racism is fundamentally opposed to the basic principles of the American ideal. Um, and that if we can't pony up to, uh, it's, that's a weird way to put it, but if we, if we can't actually have the guts to actualize our ideals, then America is going to collapse in on itself. And this is something that, that King sort of alludes to very subtly at the end of the letter. He, he is being hopeful, but he's also saying like, hey, we're hopeful in the face of great adversity, because this is not something that can persist and still allow America to retain its legitimacy as a political entity or a worthwhile political project. Um, so that, yeah, I mean, that, that's my big ender there is there's, it's, it's not a, a harbinger of doom statement that King's putting in here for rhetorical effect. This is a generally agreed upon problem that's prevalent throughout the entirety of, uh, of, of the American experience and project. Uh, yeah, that, that, I mean, that's yeah. my, my big political philosophy point, right? That you, you can't claim as a state to have certain ideals and then structurally, structurally and institutionally fail to live up to those ideals. Yeah, I agree. Hard not to agree. Um, Brad, do you have uh, any closing I, remarks? My, yeah, um... I think that, you know, we've all figured out that class consciousness is my big thing, but in light of recent events and especially, you know, when, when just such a a massive figure like King is the person that I'm reading right now, it's, it's an undeniable fact that America has a race problem. That's, you know, I, I always beat on my workers, you know, working class solidarity, but it's impossible to achieve that solidarity when you've got these just pervasive issues that have existed forever. Um, I could, I could make an entire podcast over, you know, how those things interface, but yeah, I think in light of, I think in light of current events, (laughs) my, my big, you know, mic drop moan, I guess is just, if you want the protest to stop, then you need to give them a reason to stop. And that is what will define you as a leader. That's my that's my message to the American government. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
the way you give them a reason to stop, is it going to be just overwhelming violence? Because, you know, you might be able to silence them now, but history will not be on your side. You're just going to cause a lot more misery for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to read one last section from, uh, from the letter and then that'll be it. But hopefully I, I read this here because, uh, I think it's maybe one of the more hopeful paragraphs. Um, I don't know. Maybe we'll see, but I, I think the sentiment is, is, is good. Um, that there, there's reason to, to keep moving in, in, uh, towards a, a more just society. Um, and there's some reason to have hope in this. Uh, so he says, um, I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. But even if the church does not come to the aid of justice, I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham, even if our motives are presently misunderstood. We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of America is freedom. Abused and scorned though we may be, our destiny is tied up with the destiny of America. Before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth, we were here. Before the pen of Jefferson scratched across the pages of history the majestic word of the Declaration of Independence, we were here. For more than two centuries, our foreparents labored here without wages. They made cotton king, and they built the homes of their masters in the midst of brutal injustice and shameful humiliation. And yet, out of a bottomless vitality, our people continue to thrive and develop. In the ex in the if the inexpressible cruelties of slavery could not stop us, the opposition we now face will surely fail. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of God are embodied in our echoing demands.